Would you stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through Faith, And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we may walk in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray together. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word, which is beyond our opinions or my words. Draw us in, really, truly, this morning. Draw us into your story, that we wouldn't be thinking about any other distractions, things on our list. Holy Spirit, you have the power to raise people from the dead, and you have the power in this room right now to draw us into your story. And I'm praying that you would do that. The story of redemption and creation, the story that you're you're writing in us, the the very people that have rejected you, that have have only ever contributed to your story, the, the broken and dead pieces, pieces that you're restoring by the power of your blood and your gospel. Draw us into your story. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. Uh, Welcome to the Springs. And let me be probably the last to say Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's the 7th, probably the last day I get to say that. But it should continue to be happy. Amen. Happy New Year. Uh, This is our second week of our series we're doing in the book of Ephesians that coincides with the content of our fasting week. So uh, our fasting week, which kicks off tonight at 5 p.m. right here, uh, the content of which is in our fasting booklets that we've provided for free to you in the back. Uh, We're going through the book of Ephesians, and the theme is in Christ. In Christ. Uh, Again, we are doing the sermons in this series 
the same as the daily devotionals. So every chapter of Ephesians. One of the things that you can, can, can do that's better than all others, of all the things that you can endeavor to do or resolve to do, of all the things that you can desire to know, nothing is greater than this story of redemption, of what God has done in us. We go so fast and we're so forgetful that if we would just slow down and look again at the story and study the text and consider our own lives, our own true nature, maybe we'd be less discouraged by the lesser things. In Christ, in Christ, we are a people that were once apart from Christ, that we were only in our sin, in brokenness, in depression. But because of this story, we're fully and forever in Christ. Uh, This phrase pops up three more times in Christ in our passage, and it did multiple times last week in chapter 1. And today as I unpack our passage, these 10 verses, I want to organize my thoughts around the great epic story of God, of what he does from creation to, uh, to the death of humanity to redemption and restoration, what he does in Christ. Why have people always been drawn to epic stories? Lord of the Rings, uh, even uh, Star Wars, these epic stories of sometimes dragons and good and evil. I think people have always been drawn to the stories because these stories mimic the great story where there is a dragon. There, there is evil and there is good and it's clear. And the way that God restores us in the great story is the, the biggest plot twist that any of these movies could ever come up with. It's a greater story, and I think that that's the reason why there's all these offspins of other stories like it. Because the great story that is still culminating about what God has done and what he's continuing to restore through what Jesus has done is the story that we need to connect to so that our smaller stories aren't wasted, so that our smaller resolutions aren't in vain. Amen? I want to draw us into the story, and for, it's a four-part plot. In part one, I actually have to go back up before our text. Part one of this epic story is creation. I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and it goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering above, over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Down to verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over everything, everything on earth. And so, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. This is the beginning. 
fact, to paint the picture of this beginning of creation, I want you to close your eyes for a second and picture a happy village. Uh, it's, it's perfect temperature, cool breeze. You can smell the, the flowers and the, 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 the trees, and, and it's, it is a perfect, happy village. There's singing, there's joy, there's dancing, there's feasting, there's cheese trays of all the cheeses you'd ever want, and no one's allergic. It's joyful. This is like heaven. This is like Eden. You can open your eyes again. This is what the garden was like. There's no suffering. There's no enmity. There's no gossiping. There's no passive-aggressive language, whether it's posted or not posted online. It's perfect. It's just the way things were designed to be. There's no FOMO because no one's missing out on anything. Adam and Eve walked in the manifest presence of God. They walked with God. They talked with God. They, they smelled and sensed and touched God, which is beyond our understanding. They were everything but bored and discontent. It's perfect. And then something went terribly wrong. We get to Genesis 3, and the, the enemy comes to Adam and Eve and Adam, respectively, and starts lying. Did God really say? See, this, this enemy that, that was created and rebelled before we were created wants to draw others into his misery because you've heard misery loves company. And he starts to lie. The only power he has then on Adam and Eve is the same soul power that he has on you now. And it's just lies. Did God really say, is God really good? Yes, he is. But instead of that, the, the doubt was agreed to. Well, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I could question the goodness of God. And from that very moment, the whole nature of humanity was cursed. When we disconnect from God, an infinitely good being, an infinitely evil nature and being and disposition, disposition enters us. So let's go back to the village for a minute. In this happy, happy place, a dragon comes to destroy the village and stops at the outer portion of the gate and begins to yell obscenities and, and make bargains with the people on the inside of the village. I won't destroy you if you just come out to me. And the people of the village start coming out to the dragon and he, he touches them. And as he, the dragon touches them, dark blood starts to go through their veins. They start to turn red and scales of dragon comes on these people. And these people turn and join the very dragon that came to destroy them and start looting the city pillaging, raping, doing evil in this village, throwing rocks at the king's palace, hurling obscenities at him, mayhem. This is a picture of our planet today. We didn't just become victims of the dragon, of the devil, of the evil one. We, in our fall, became co-conspirators 
with the dragon. We engendered the fallen, dead nature of the dragon. We're not just victims, we're also victimizers. This is how far we've fallen, a a fall that's so deep we can't even have words to explain it. This is how far we've fallen. Uh, There's a question today about whether or not the Trump administration colluded with the Russians. And I think with more news, the question starts to become a little more clear, but it still remains a question. Well, I want to just say that there is no question about whether or not we, fallen humanity, colluded with our true enemy, which is a greater state of enmity than the Russians. We not only colluded with the devil and Satan, but we took on his dead nature, his dragon nature we took upon ourselves. We became children of the beast. As 1 John 3 says, children of the devil. We engendered his nature when we colluded with him. We are alive to Satan and we are dead to God spiritually. That's why verses 1 through 3, if we could just church grasp the depth of the fallenness that we enter earth with, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, our body, our mind. Why? Were we just kind of close to the bad people, right? Those bad people out there? No, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I pray that we would understand the depth of our fall. We were created to be something great and peaceful and glorious, and we are infinitely the opposite. That's how far we've fallen I pray that we would understand ourselves with God's eyes. John Calvin, in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, when he was like 22 years old, the very first words go like this. It says, Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of of ourselves. We classically fail to understand ourselves, to understand how and why we're so messed up. And you wonder why we classically misdiagnose ourselves. We don't know ourselves because we don't know the God from whom we gain our image, from whose image we have deeply fallen to the root of, our, of everything. We are radically corrupted down to our flesh. We are dead. That's how we've fallen. We don't understand ourselves because we try to look and see ourselves in light of ourselves instead of in light of the one who created us. When we see creation only through the lens of the creation and not through the creator, of course we're going to have a skewed view. 
the last few hundred years, especially since the Enlightenment, uh, we as man have been the center of the universe. And we wonder why we've grown increasingly confused about ourselves. The dysphoria knows no limits. It's because we don't understand ourselves when we don't have the knowledge of God. And worse yet, we so think we do. The more confused we get, the more confident we get in our confusion. This is how far we've fallen. We don't know ourselves because we don't know God. We don't know we're dead because we don't know what it's like to be alive with God, body, soul, and spirit. And explaining spiritual deadness to an unconverted person about how we're spiritually dead is not that categorically different than trying to explain to a physically dead person that they're physically dead, right? That conversation is going to be a lot more fruitful when they're kind of undead, right? Explaining to someone who doesn't know God and who therefore doesn't have his life in him doesn't go very well. You were dead. Now we understand that once we're alive, once we're truly converted to God and we see how much we had fallen before, when we're truly alive, you can understand it. You were dead. Dead, verse 1 says. I believe our failure to grasp the depth, the vibrancy, the colors, the power of the life that God provides for us. Our failure to rightly grasp this comes down to our failure to understand how dead we were. And when we don't understand the depth from which we've come, from which God revives a converted Christian. When we don't understand that, we allow other lesser worries and anxieties to take up space in our hearts. It's a, it's a disconnection from the reality of what God has done and is doing in us. We need to understand the depth. You were dead in the trespasses of your sins. Let me just help illustrate this. How would you feel? I'm illustrating the need for us to understand the context of how the gospel plays out in the world, okay? How would you feel if someone came up to you and stabbed you in the arm with a syringe? Think about it. What words come to your mind when I say that? Someone comes up to you and stabs you in the arm with a syringe. Okay, well, I didn't give you enough context for you to rightly answer that question. Context is this. Ten minutes ago, you were just bit by the most venomous cobra on the planet. A person comes up to you with the anti-venom and stabs you in the arm. The feeling now with the context is a little different, right? John Piper is a pastor in, uh, in Minnesota. He says this, he says, A drowning man, when struck in the head with an inner tube, rejoices. A man at play, when struck in the head with an inner tube, cusses. Here's the problem with most of us. We are drowning, thinking we're at play, and God hits us with redemption, and we don't rightly see the context of how he saves. And all of these analogies are inadequate because we're not dying. 
The Bible doesn't say here in Ephesians 2 that we're dying or drowning. It says that we're dead. If you remember where, where Jesus resurrects a man named Lazarus, Lazarus wasn't dying. He was dead. I think perhaps that the rest of his life until he died again, the rest of his life he never confused about whether or not he got his life right with God. He was dead. God made him alive through some words that Jesus spoke. Same story as you and me. It's just that Lazarus probably understands it better than I do. We were dead. God reminds me of this all the time. This last week, my wife and I agreed to watch our little dog of my brother-in-law. He's had for the last, geez, 15 years, uh, a, a little Boston Terrier named Ginger. Ginger is now blind and pretty much deaf. And, and I'll say this, I'm just using a literal word here. Ginger is pretty useless, other than being loved. She walks around the house, barks, and gives sometimes fair warning about if she's going to poop or pee in the house. Sometimes no fair warning. And uh, the first few days of having Ginger in the house, I, I, I complained about it. Like, man, this little dog is ruining my show. Uh, or, or this little dog inconveniences me. And over the few weeks, like, my heart became endeared to Ginger because God was showing me something in it. Uh, God is showing me, Peter, this little dog can do more to get to me than you could have done in your deadness of heart. We're helpless, we're dead. That's the state of our hearts when we approach God. You were dead in the trespasses of your sin. You were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, being driven by how you feel, how you think, what you want. This is my story. I followed the course of our culture because I was following my own fallen mind and what I thought about God instead of who God is. I was following my own flesh. I remember what it's like to be dead. I remember what it's like to be unable to disobey my flesh, my sexual urges. I remember what it's like to be a slave to sin. I was dead. I wasn't just kind of needing some improvement. I was dead. I was like a jellyfish in the ocean. No power to go this way or that. Just being drifted around in the sea of my own sin and pulled by the, the sea of the sin of everyone else around me. Sin isn't just a few bad things you do. You know, like when you're depressed or when you have an excuse to do it. Sin is who you are. You were by nature children of wrath. That's how far we've fallen. Sin is all over our spiritual DNA. Uh, anyone in here a parent? When you're a parent, you really understand this. You don't have to teach your kids to do selfish things and steal toys that aren't theirs and then lie about it. It's just all up in their nature. We were by nature children of wrath, dead in the sin of our transgressions. Creation, fall, and then crazy abruptly, redemption. 
We were by nature children of wrath, children of death, right? Uh, Bible says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. God is just in allowing the consequences of our uh, disconnection from life to produce the awful fruit of death, the wages, what we've earned in sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's an abrupt but. In Ephesians 2, it's just as abrupt, if not more. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, remember us dead sinners in line with the dragon, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5 says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then a few verses later, it repeats the same thing. I think because uh, we're dense and we forget things, and because the, the gravity of how crazy and wonderful and transcendent this truth is. Verse 8, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And then just to clarify, and just, just in case we take credit for the faith part, and the faith is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What an infinitely powerful redemption to come and draw out our need for it because of our infinitely low and dead fall. But God, not but you and God, came to an agreement about the new life that you would live together. Not but you turned over a new leaf. Not but you got your life right with God. Not but once you broke up with him or her, you started to get things back together to, again. Or not but 2018 came and you decided to be different. And so there, that's how it went. It says, but God. Why? Because of his great love. But and because. These are two of the most powerfully abrupt conjunctions in the history of language, I think. In this sentence, God is the subject of the whole sentence. We are the object of his mercy and his love. When you are a total mess, or when you're just maybe today trying to be less of a mess, you are the object of his love, his power, his love. So let's go back to the village for a second. The king of the village that the dragon has burned down comes to defeat the dragon and all of the, the people who had once been villagers of the king and now are dead to the king and alive in the dragon's nature and fuming with the dragon's rage. The king comes to defeat them. And what does he do? In the greatest plot twist of all plot twists, the, the king comes, and this is how he ends the revolt. And this is how he executes justice and progressively stops the rape and murder and pillaging. The king drops his sword, removes his armor, 
surrenders himself to the dragon's tribunal and is given a sentence of death under false pretense, but willingly, and dies for his betrayers to take the penalty. There's a party that night in the dragon's camp, and it's loud and it's raucous. The party goes to the next morning, up until the next night, party celebrating the dead king, all the way till the following morning, the party abruptly stops when the king comes back to life, and now he's glowing with new light. He's, he's glowing, and he's going into the dragon's camp, and he's touching people. And when he touches them, they start glowing too. The, the scales of the dragon start falling off of them. Their, their blood is restored. They start glowing with new light. This is redemption. The word redemption means taking back. God takes back his dead betrayers and brings life. To take us back, Jesus has to take our punishment on himself. He lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, and yet nonetheless chose to die the death that we should have died. The death that we deserve for for an infinite crime, which is treason against a perfect God. An infinitely pure king is the only one who's qualified to take upon himself his, our infinitely grave sentence of death. He dies, he rises, and his resurrection power, he starts bringing people to life. I remember glowing for the first time. 1997, uh, all of a sudden I just have this new passion and desire for God's word and, and, and a new hatred for the sin that I used to think was so cute, like disgust. I remember glowing for the first time. In fact, I wish, I wish there was purple books back then, that someone could have explained to me what happened to me so I would stop taking credit for it. I was dead And through no undeadness of my own, the living one touched me with his life. And all of a sudden, I see differently. I see him differently. I see young women differently. I have new ability to to fight my old nature. To fight, y'all. There's a fight, but there's life in the fight. There's no more slavery in the fight. There's new power in the fight. There's endless victory, progressive victory in the fight. I remember the first time I started glowing. I could confess my sin to other believers without shame. So let's review so far. God makes us in creation saying, let there be light. And then in death, in the fall, we, we bring darkness on ourselves, on our thinking, on our bodies, on our urges. We align with the enemy. And then in redemption... The same God who originally said, let there be light, has shown in our dead hearts to give us, the dead people, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world and who rose again from the dead. He gives us his light. Why? Why? 
There's one word that's repeated three times, grace, to show the exceeding riches of his grace, the ever bright and glory, uh, glowing glory of his grace. Creation, fall, redemption, and then forever and ever, restoration. Restoration, stay with me. If you grasp this part of the plot in increasing measure, the fruitfulness of your life will be a story told by many others. Verse 6, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, in this age, in the next age, no, in the coming ages, plural, that's forever and ever, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there's a new village. The dragon is dead. There's constant acclamation and joy. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a greater joy than the first because there's no fear about whether or not anything can hurt us. We've already died. We have new life. The fences are in, impenetrable now. The dragon is slain. New joy. It's endless joy. The best way I can describe this, I have to take you back to January 4th, 2006. Uh, If you're not a Longhorn fan, then I'm sorry for you, okay? Uh, January 4th, 2006, I'll never forget the way I felt uh, when Vince Young ran into the right side of the end zone, right? And I'm thinking, I I remember actually I was in the room with my mother-in-law, my wife, my sister and brother-in-law, and we were all like whisper screaming because... My nephew, who's now 12, was then like 12 days old. Uh, and uh, we were screaming like, yeah. Well, check this out. In heaven, the victory is infinitely greater because uh, the, the football victories come and go. Um, and quickly, we lose excitement about it. But we never lose excitement about the victory that's eternal and substantive and redeems and restores. Heaven is a rejoicing and acclamation that's powerful, and you don't have to whisper. You can shout, holy, holy is the Lamb. And this eternal life starts from the moment you're redeemed and you're taken back, and it grows and grows. It says immeasurable riches. Think about the richest people on the planet. I think uh, the, the, the Amazon guy went in and out, and then there's, the, there's all these rich people, like $100 billion. I don't even know how to calculate all that. But there's rich people on the planet. Of all the rich people from which you could receive their kindness, it says immeasurable riches in kindness, it says. If you could receive kindness, like the most extravagant kindness, with all their wealth from anyone, who would it be? God has given you more. Allow that to apply to the things that maybe are weighing on you today, January 7th, 2018, the things that you're worried about. God has given you access eternally to more. You're not just taken back, you're driven up to his riches. 
in his power. You're restored to new thinking, to new uh, ability to, to share the immeasurable riches. It says here, I want to unpack this last word, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's the last verse I'm going to share. If you are created, which all of us are, you're for sure come onto the earth fallen, broken, dead. Most of us in this room, not all of us, have been redeemed, taken back. We have faith that God gives us. He brings us to life. That's the third part. But the fourth part is we are created again. Verse 10, we are his workmanship created, or in context, recreated, reinforced, more secure. No worry about whether or not uh, this is going to be a fall again or not. No, we are recreated and reinforced with a better word. We are created. It says we're his workmanship. You know the word workmanship uh, is the Greek word poemia, which means uh, where we get the word poem. We're his poem. Through the gospel of Jesus, his blood coursing through your veins, it's what he spoke into the existence in the world before the foundation of the world that you would be his poem. His poem. Not yours. His poem, church, needs no edits. He doesn't need your help to make it better. What he wants you to do is to rest in the sound of what he's speaking over your life. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that you have to go create. No, that he is prepared for you. Imagine me uh, taking a Maya Angelou poem and be like, all right, Maya, Maya here's how I'm going to make it better. I'm going to improve upon it. I think she would get up out of her grave and punch me in the neck, and rightly so. You don't need to improve upon her poem. As absurd as that is, many of us are trying to do that this new year with what God's done in us. I'm not saying that there's not things that you need to stop doing or start doing. I'm saying to walk with Jesus, you have to first and fundamentally rest in Jesus. We aspire to do some great things together in a new year, church the very first and foremost thing I want to do is together to rest in Christ, to celebrate what he's done, and to let the breadth and the weight of that wash us over, reconstruct our hearts, our concerns. Would you stand with me?